0: Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. Tim, today, in fact, this week, we're celebrating something uh, that I think is really exciting. Maybe uh, it's a holiday or a kind of an awareness week that many people may not be aware of, but uh, it is actually a American Education Week. It's November 16th through the 20th. Yeah. And this is a season, a time, a week um, for us to uh, celebrate, right? Yeah. For us to cheer those, those folks on. And perhaps, it turns out, in, myth, in the midst of maybe one of the biggest yeah. challenges to the yeah. education system that has been around probably in 100 years, if not more, um, but this is a time for us to recognize, especially public education, yeah. uh, the system that we have and, and what it's doing, as well as honoring those individuals, the teachers and counselors and yeah. uh, administrators who are making a difference uh, in the lives of students and ensuring that every student gets a quality education. So we just want to celebrate
1: that today. Absolutely. Andrew, I've said at least 100 times over the last few years, teachers are heroes for Yes, me. yes. And I often have to remind myself, as they do, I'm sure, to separate the teacher who is working so hard, it's an emotionally expensive job, and they're not getting paid super well with the system they're in that is less than optimal. And we all know that. Yes. So recently, Andrew, I was uh, teaching seniors in high school. This was a leadership um, course we were doing. And um, I had the um, students in pods of three to get up and make a little speech, a persuasive speech, very common. The first group that got up got up and said, our persuasive speech is, we wish our school offered a course on life skills. <laughs> uh, changing attire, doing taxes, uh, handling finances. They all felt really inept about handling money. Um, and I'm thinking, I think when I was growing up, mom and dad kind of sort of did that. Yeah. But mom and dad were both there. Today, they're often both working, or maybe yeah. there's just a single parent. It's just not happening at home. And the students are graduating perhaps unready. But it's not the fault of the teacher it's the larger system. And we want to talk about that today and say, how could we in our current system make it better? Absolutely.
0: In the midst of of celebrating the efforts of yes. all of the individuals yes. in, in it, we also acknowledge that there's room to grow. Yeah. But that's true of any industry. No you doubt. Know, it's true of our nonprofit. It's true of I- any other industry as well. But when those students say, we wish there was a course on life skills, that implies that there's a gap in, in education. And it's not necessarily in the reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? The gap is in getting students ready for life. Yes. And we have to say that's one of the most important things that we're trying to do uh, in education. But it's a recognition that our world has changed. Um, And in fact, this is not the first time that educators have realized our world has changed, and it may be our education system needs to start making some adjustments to meet it. Uh, And that's why I'm really excited about this conversation is Mm -hmm. because we want to look... Uh, in the rearview mirror, so to speak, at where have we come? And what can we honestly learn from from the past? And how do we take that into the future? And frankly, there's probably nobody
1: better to lead us in that conversation than you. And so I, I think this could be really great. I love history, and I love education. So uh, listeners, what we thought we might want to do is is just quickly trace backwards, uh, as Andrew just said, on where we've come from, and then look forward. So looking backward, there was a day in early America, even before we had all 50 states, for sure, we had colonies at the beginning where school was not for everyone, and it was a one-room schoolhouse. Mm. And your education really depended on the quality of the adult that was in that room that one room. And there were 8-year-olds and 16-year-olds and 10-year-olds and and, and so forth. There were some pluses and minuses, but Horace Mann really paved the way for the modern school reform movement that we've all been a part of. So when Horace Mann was elected to act as secretary of the newly created Massachusetts Board of Education in 1837, um, he modeled school. His goal was to model school after the workforce, hmm. the current workforce at the time. Yes. So we were on the beginning edge, eh, we're somewhere in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. Yes. So factories were starting to spring up by the late 19th century. Uh, uh, businesses were finding more efficient ways through machines to get the job done. And he thought, what if the schoolroom looked like the workroom? Mm. or at least emulated it. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the Marching Off the Map book, Andrew, that we had so much fun creating, yes. we learned that the reason schools start with bells today is because Horace Mann, way back over 100 years ago, said, since factories start with bells or whistles, we're going to start with bells in the school. We're going to get them ready for real life. And that was his whole goal. It was career readiness, workforce readiness, and he did quite a good job at the time. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And his, like we said, his focus was to get students ready for the world they were entering into. And what I love so much about Horace Mann is I think he was very much in a place in 1837 that we find ourselves in today. Yes. uh, To recognize that the world is
1: shifting and the way we do education, it does not match that new world. Yeah. No doubt about it. So before the industrial revolution, most kids' families could not afford to go to school because school wasn't free. Yep. Um, after the Industrial Revolution, schooling was a, very more, a, a much more important uh, part of life. Absolutely. Now, my dad, who just passed away this month, uh, was born in 1930. He said, Tim, growing up in Indiana, we all had school, but it was common to end at the eighth grade. Yeah. You know, and then you then you entered the workforce. You know, today we're going to high school at least, maybe college. You know? yes. So it was still different, but at least it was becoming the norm. Yes. So um, number two, before the industrial revolution, most poor children had jobs on farms or in factories instead of getting an education. Uh, after the industrial revolution, nearly the entire country's children were were, were educated. Yeah. Like and like I said, it wasn't always twelfth grade or college, but it was yes. some.
0: It was some and it, it yeah. was an important amount.
1: Yeah, that's right. And reading became the norm. Absolutely. So number three, the majority of the population were poor before the Industrial Revolution, so the country was not as well-educated. Only the wealthy could afford the schooling. After the Industrial Revolution, um, Mechanics Institute night schools were offered for working men to earn their knowledge and education. So we found a way to say this is going to be the norm, the common thing. Which
0: created opportunities for more and more people.
1: Yeah, yeah. So before the Industrial Revolution, as I alluded to just a minute ago, many children and adults, for that matter, had a less educated life, and many didn't even know how to read or write. Yeah. Afterwards, reading and writing became became the norm. Um, the country built libraries so you can improve your learning, even on your own, and we began to see education go up. Um, powerful shift... Thanks to Horace Mann,
0: absolutely, and it was really, it was really Horace Mann at the beginning, really the early parts of that industrial revolution Re- revolution shift, seeing the the need for some of these changes, yeah. putting them into place, and because of that, he was a- actually able to help us leverage the most out of the industrial yeah. revolution for the sake of uh, the education system. Because honestly, if if those changes had not been made, it would have been really easy for us to just yeah. ship kids off to factories and they get to work, yeah. you know. Yeah. But he said he recognized not only the need need for factory work, but also the need for a population who could read and write, the need yes. for a population who could uh, work systematically together. That was a big thing. He wanted yeah. everybody to see the same way so that they could step into the same place on the factory line yeah. and take their place as somebody else. And so he was beginning to see uh, ahead of, uh, ahead yes. of the,
1: just the needs of the yeah. day yeah. to see what the needs of the future might be, which I, I really love that about about him. Yeah, absolutely. So education reform over the last twenty to thirty years has taken us to another level. Mm. So many schools, as I just alluded to, started with bells. Uh, they, you know, you, you he was trying to emulate a workforce that really was nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Well, we're in the twenty first century now. Indeed. So about the last twenty to thirty years, tail end of the twentieth century and the front end of the twenty first century. Um, we began to shift again now let me talk about the beginnings of this shift during the 1870s american educator francis w parker <clears throat> having spent 3 decades in europe learning how the europeans were doing education saw a shift going on there and it was more of a socratic method there was mm, interaction more yes so um andrew i know this is history for you i remember a little bit of this in my early days um W- 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 he he came up with this radical new method for teaching to the school uh, teaching in the school system of Quincy Illinois so okay. this was a beta test in some ways yes most classrooms at the time were run in a strict authoritarian fashion with school students learning all subjects by memorizing passages of books and then reciting them back that was what you did yes. today we fill in the blank or we you know we circle <laughs> fill a in letter, the bubble choice, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but but it's still rote mm-hmm. um, in many many ways so um, this uh, francis parker started the quincy movement because it was in quincy illinois um, his new methods promoted children centered educate or child centered education we now often hear the word student-centered education. Yes,
0: it's a theory that's become even more popular yeah, today. Yeah,
1: yeah, and his theory was that children would learn better if lessons incorporated their experience and interest mm-hmm. and interaction. Yes, um, so sounds like project-based learning, but Yeah, the way. that's right. So John Dewey comes along next. We've all heard of John Dewey. Um, he lived almost 100 years, uh, and he expanded on Parker's theories and spread them throughout the country. So it wasn't just Quincy, it was, you know, uh, the, the very states across the U.S. Uh, Dewey advocated uh, physical exercise and field trips outside the classroom, which now are quite normal, Yes, although we're a pretty sedate culture today, even the parents. But he built on, on, on what Parker had done and, and built it to a whole other level. It was more experiential um, to help them determine, help students determine which track each student should take administrators turned to a new type of analysis known as the intelligence quotient, the IQ test Mm -hmm. that we introduced to the school system. Critics warned um, against relying totally on the IQ test. Um, They suggested that such tests were slanted in favor of children who received more opportunities in life. Especially early in life. That's so true, yeah. In fact, they were making decisions early on based on these tests, And you and I both know there's some late bloomers, really great late bloomers, that would not have fared well and did not fare well Mm -hmm. because of that. But in the late 20th century uh, and then the early 21st century, there, were re- there was a renewed emphasis on standardized testing as a way of measuring academic achievement. And the thing I want to point out to our listeners who are walking through this history with us, this led to a major focus on academic outcomes mm-hmm. as almost a sole report card. Pardon Absolutely. The we're just looking at test scores. Mm-hmm. Well, think about this, Andrew. Even though we know that made sense at the time, solely test score, just to rely only on test scores... Kids can game the system, and they do. Absolutely. Teachers can become skewed in, well, that's what I'm shooting for, it's just the right grade. Not that they learn something, just the right grade, because we need funding. So you can see how incentives and motivations might have been a little bit skewed on both the student and the teacher, given this solo way of evaluation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what you're seeing here as we go through this history is sort of two threads, is what I would call them. Uh, I think Horace Mann started this thing, yeah. and what happened at the at, at almost the same time is there was this uh, push, especially once Binet created the first IQ test, yeah. uh, this push towards academic achievement, mm-hmm. towards the idea of general yes. intelligence, a kid's either smart yes. or they're not, period, end of sentence. And that sort of created this rigorous investment in academic scores like we have now. And then there's this other thread uh, with John Dewey and a lot of that, um, where we're thinking about yeah. education a little bit differently. We're pushing uh, the, the boundaries. And so I think it's really the place we find ourselves in is that those two ideas are sort of coming up against each other yeah. and in some ways working together, in yeah. other ways they're clashing. Yeah. A- and, and that's why we find ourselves in such an apex moment here in the history of education.
1: So a classic scenario, Andrew, of what you're saying is the number of uh, employers that we might talk to who would say, "Well, I just interviewed a recent graduate. He had a 4.0 on his report card, but he had no soft skills. You know, unable. And and we know he could be able, but the Horace Mann Career Readiness part was somehow lost in the John Dewey and the academic test scores. So bosses that we, or I shouldn't say boss, employers we talked to would say." I do love scholarship. I do love smart kids who are coming onto yep. the staff. But we gotta have them career ready. Hard skills and soft skills have to be married. Yes,
0: absolutely. And and this I think is where we arrive. I think at the the need of the hour, yeah, which yeah. is the need for more soft skills more than ever because they're not being developed. Yeah. Uh, in, in the outside, uh, the world outside of school. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you might reflect for us a little bit. We talked about this. What can we learn? What what lessons do we yeah. need to take from our uh, moment of history? And how do we begin to transition the lessons? that we learn from looking in the rearview mirror, so to speak, to start to begin to think about what
1: principles from this do we take into our our future decisions. Mm -hmm. So three things come to mind. One, um, I think in education, and perhaps in all of life, uh, we have a tendency to maintain the status quo, just repeat the same stuff the next year, same lesson plans, same school schedule, etc. And we do see educators that are breaking out of that mold, but we humans tend to be creatures of habit. Absolutely. There's a reason the school bell... Is still yeah, that, in the school, right. right? Exactly, that's yeah. right. Number two, our incentive and motivation, as I pointed out, is often something other than helping students learn. So we'll talk, talk to teachers, and again, they're heroes for us who would say, I want my students to learn, but I'm being evaluated on whether they, you know, got the good test score. Correct. So sometimes both teachers and students will teach to the test, and then just learn how to take the test rather than really truly saying, and I learned math so I can be helpful as an accountant at a job. Yes. So a fine line, but but there's a difference. Absolutely. The third, um, I think, thing we can learn or outcome we can learn from history is the best forms of education have been those that simply say, we're seeking to prepare kids for, for real life. Mm. Now, that does mean academics for sure, but it means far more than academics.
0: Absolutely. Well, this is great. Well, in years ago when we worked on this book together, Marching Off the Map, um, you developed two analogies that can help us transition from uh, our our own history to, how do we leverage that to go into the future? We've got some great principles we just pulled from our history. I wonder if you could share quickly with us those two metaphors, and we could talk about uh, how might we learn from our yeah, past to yeah. walk into the future. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and in many ways, since you used the analogy of the rearview mirror, we're now going to move from the rearview mirror to the windshield. Yes. We want to look backward, glance backwards, so yes. we can really gaze forward. So the two metaphors that we use in the Marching Off the Map book that we felt like started good conversations at schools and youth groups and, and organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs, scouting programs, athletic departments that have young athletes, were these. Um, swing sets and plumb lines. <laughs> so let's talk about swing sets for a minute. Every one of us remember, uh, if we have kids... Uh, putting them on the swing set when they were four or five years old, and the first thing our child screams out is, swing me higher, swing me higher. Mm -hmm. You and I both know you can't swing higher and greater forward unless you pull them backward better. So swinging backward uh, means we need to ask questions like, what's our foundation and our heritage in this school or this district? Uh, Why did we decide to pursue our mission? What value did we seek to add to our community? What were the destructive elements we were trying to get rid of or discard? And then finally, were there principles we felt are essential to sustain ourselves? Mm. So that's swinging backwards. Those questions just help us not lose why we got... These are the questions we
0: ask when we read about
1: somebody like Horace Band. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Swinging forward questions might be like these. Where do we want to go today? How has the landscape become different than it was in the past? Um, What are the greatest needs we see in front of us today? Are they different than in the past? Yeah. Um, What new methods or strategies do we need for the future if we're still going to pursue that same mission? And then lastly, how do we stay relevant by renewing our pledge to our purpose, Mm. our mission? So um, those are not rocket science, listeners, and you probably have heard or read something like that before. But I want to encourage you to take it, take a step, maybe as you enter twenty twenty one, and say, let's get on, hop on the swing set and and swing backwards and then forwards.
0: Yeah, this is a great discussion activity for. Uh uh, a staff uh, or faculty yeah. to do together, If yeah. especially if you recognize the need for change in the school, yeah. just have an open discussion. Let's yeah. swing backwards first. What? Why did you get into yeah. education? Why did we start this thing? What's the purpose of yeah. why we got, okay, now let's talk about swinging forward. What yeah. challenges are we facing? What yeah. changes could we make? And we've had several schools that have had this conversation. It's been so helpful for them.
1: Well, Andrew, you and, you and I and our team here at Growing Leaders has our own version of this. One thing I appreciate about you is, have you noticed that we'll be in the room sometimes discussing an issue in our leadership meeting, and I'll swing backward. Now, what, the reason we started this at Growing Leaders was because back in 2003.
0: <laughs> Your hair gets grayer as that, you're talking. That's right. Yeah. I get
1: more wrinkles when <laughs> I say that. But you're, as a young professional, saying, and yet we see today, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's a need for both. You yes, need, you there is a the need for both. History and you need future. So the second metaphor that we use, and we'll make this brief, but we think it's really helpful is the plumb line Mm -hmm. analogy. Now, I won't go long into this. Most of you know what a plumb line is, but we don't use them as often today as we did maybe 100 years ago. Plumb lines had really two uses uh, when they were um, first used, and by my gosh, they were first used millenniums ago. Uh, um, So a sailor or a fisherman would use them in the water, in a boat. They would plumb the depths of the water to see how deep the water was. So plumb lines were about depth. Mm -hmm. But then secondly, they were used by builders who might be building a house. And once the wall was constructed, they'd hold a plumb line, which by the way is a line with a weight on the end of it. You could hold it up next to a wall and see, oops, Our wall's crooked. Mm. We're an inch off because the plumb line gravity would pull it straight down, and you could see if the wall was crooked. So it was about accuracy and depth. Oh, boy, do organizations need to hold a plumb line up to themselves today and say... Are we doing what our values said we were supposed to be doing? Yes. And if we were honest, Andrew, we've had a few moments where we said, I don't think we're doing the all for one right now. Yeah. Which is one of our values. Mm-hmm. So it's
0: it's just so helpful. Absolutely. I, I encourage people to figure out what are your plumb lines? What are the uh, maybe the individuals in your organization? Maybe they're the core values in your organization, but they're the things you can look to objectively to see are we off? Are we as deep as we need to be? Are we as accurate as we need to be? Um, this is just a really, a really great analogy. So, uh, Tim, to close us, uh, I'd love for you to share this story. It's one of my favorite stories of somebody who uh, recognized, looked into the past, yeah. saw the things that had been done, and said, "I think there's a better way." Um, and he's uh, went down in in history as uh, a great innovator and, and challenger. So, yeah.
1: So this happened in 1968. When I was very young, but I remember watching the Olympics, and it was the high jump event in Mexico City, Mm -hmm. but um, it was a young man who could see the future, but he had done his history, you know? And so uh, Dick Fosbury was an Oregon State University student who was going to compete in the Olympics. He was that good in the high jump. What he did to get ready was, uh, over the last few years, he had been looking backward at four iterations of the high jump. All of which were good and took us forward, but I mean it was like the scissors jump, where you kind of look like a pair of scissors. Your arms were spread out, your legs are spread out, and you hope to God you make it over the bar because <laughs> it could be a terrible accident if you didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know. But uh, but then there were different different iterations. He saw them and saw the merit in them, but thought, I think there's a way to get the human body over that high bar differently mm-hmm. and even better. So we all saw the fruits of his labor in 1968 he had two different colored shoes on and dick fosbury invented what we now know as the fosbury flop mm. and the fosbury flop was actually a way of getting over the high bar that made the people in the grandstands laugh that day in fact for all we know people in front of their tv probably laughed that day he went over head first but staring upward legs last so they weren't over first and you kind of just flopped over. It looked, You looked like a... It
0: looked really strange.
1: Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And we thought it looked strange until we saw the numbers. Yeah. He got the gold medal that year. He yeah. beat his American counterpart and then the Russian competitor and got over the bar. Well, now, Andrew, this the foster baby flops the norm. So what we laughed at, at the beginning... Are you hearing me, listeners? What we laughed at, at the beginning, because it was, seemed so odd, so weird, so different. How can you do that over there at that school... Well, but if it's getting results, my gosh, maybe we better do the Fosbury flop too. Mm. So whatever industry you're in, I know you care about the next generation. You wouldn't be listening to this. I would just suggest, are you willing to do something a little crazy, a little maybe funny that people might laugh at at the beginning, but you are so saying, I believe these kids are worth it, and I'm willing to try something for their sake that might seem odd to my peers, but it's exactly what they need in the So end. good uh, what you'll find in in um,
0: in the era of transformation is when you've got a new idea it starts with people laughing at you yeah then it goes to people applauding you then it goes to people copying you yeah. cuz yeah. 1972 4 years later every single competitor <laughs> is using the Fo- Fosbury flop yeah. so it went from he's a he's the bunt of all the jokes to I need to learn how to tr- how to do that. Yeah, I think there are a lot of educators out there who have ideas that could be just that kind of thing. Absolutely, uh, where people yeah. will s- applaud you and and um, we'll yeah. see all kinds of change happen. Okay, we've got one final uh, fun thing we want to do. It's a treat. It's a treat. Yeah, on this uh, podcast, uh, we actually thought in celebration of American Education Week, we should talk to an educator. So we're we're about to call one of our partners. Um, she's a fantastic educator by the name of Ann Ryder at Harrisburg uh, Harrisburg Middle school, and she actually is utilizing our our Habitudes curriculum uh, with sixth graders. So
1: this is going to be pretty fun. So Tim, let's give her a call. So we have Ann Ryder with us. Um, Ann is a uh, middle school teacher at Harrisburg Middle School. She teaches sixth grade students. Is that correct, Ann? That is correct. Okay. That's a calling, you know. Yes, uh, it is. you have. Uh, So we are honored to be with you, and we just have a few minutes, but um, I think as you teach um, our social-emotional learning curriculum, which, by the way, thank you for doing that, um, you have a story to tell of how your students are learning. Would you mind sharing that story?
2: So I do teach sixth-grade students here at Harrisburg Middle School. Um, The classroom that I teach in is known as the Transitions Classroom, and we're here to try to help kids make that transition from the grade school mindset to kind of the middle school adolescent mindset and the Habitudes program has just done some amazing things to help us delineate kind of some areas of growth that we feel like are really relevant to these kids at this point in their lives. Um, It's information that hasn't really ever been addressed with them formally In their classroom. And it's really giving them a chance to, you know, put words to some of their feelings and the experiences that they're having as, you know, 11 and 12 year olds. And the thing that I love the most, and this is kind of the story of my experience last year with Habitudes in my classroom is that common vocabulary Mm -hmm. that it's giving to these kids to use with their families and with their teachers and with one another. So, one of my favorite habitudes last year happens to be um, the one on Pyrrhic Victory. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, kids at this age are really starting to become invested in their peer relationships, but they're not always very graceful with Mm -hmm. them yet. And all middle school teachers can tell you that the drama and the conflict at the middle school level can just be massive. So we covered Pyrrhic Victory in the springtime of last year. And for some reason, that just coincides with the absolute peak of all their emotional stuff. (laughs) And it was so cool to start to see these kids use and apply some of the ideas and the vocabulary from this Habitude to the movies that we watched. And especially to their relationships with their family and their friends. And in my classroom, there's all kinds of opportunities for chatting and relating and venting. And so as we went through this habitude, I got to see my kids start to begin to like peer mediate and critique each other and their stories and their gripes. And more than one time, I heard a kid, you know, relate to another student who was complaining about an argument or some drama And they would just pop off and go, well, that's a Pyrrhic victory if I ever heard
1: one. Oh, I love it.
2: So I would just get cracked up because they were understanding that, you know, losing a friend over something crazy and silly was not worth it. It was, you know, winning the battle but losing the war. Mm -hmm. And I loved beginning to see them. Use those terminologies, you know, in yeah. their relationships with other people. Learning compromise and and how to speak to one another in those terms. So love it. You know, I think as a teacher, especially as a sixth grade teacher, when you hear as an eleven year old use the term "Pyrrhic victory," it's literally <laughs> like winning the Super Bowl of teaching.
1: <laughs> I love it. And you are the reason why teachers are heroes for me. Thank you for your relationship focus with the students and really wanting them to transition well. They've given this job to the right person. Thank you for being a teacher, and thanks for using our habitudes to start those conversations.
2: And thank you for allowing me to be a part of the Growing Leaders family. It means more to me than I can say.
1: Wow. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Well, that was awesome. Thank you, and so much for sharing that with us. She is doing some incredible stuff. Didn't I tell you she was great? She's really great. Uh, well, uh, we want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you're interested in using our Habitudes for Social Emotional Learning program, like Ann is using, uh, it's really simple uh, to utilize. It's it's uh, simply called Habitudes for Social and Emotional Learning. Habit- Habitudes are simply images that teach leadership habits and attitudes. And if you want to find out more about this curriculum, head on over to growingleaders.com slash SEL, and you can find out all that you need to, to do there, as well as get a, a free quote and even test out the curriculum yourself. Um, If you would, just like we just did, Give a call to a teacher that you know, even if you are a teacher, call another teacher you know, and thank them this week for what they're doing. This has been a really challenging year for educators, and I think they deserve our thanks. So give give a call to an educator this week if you can. And also, as always, if you would rate this podcast, give us five stars. That gets the word out about what we're doing here. If you found today's podcast helpful, please share it with somebody uh, that you know. If you want to connect with us uh, on social media, we are at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore pretty much every where you are. And then finally, if you've got ideas for this podcast, people you want us to interview, things you want us to talk about, shoot us an email. It's podcast at podcastatgrowingleaders.com. We love getting those. Well, Tim, thank you so much for leading us through today, for helping us celebrate this uh, American Education Week. Uh, Guys, go out and celebrate this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.